The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so let us get started. So, dear Ajahn Brahmali, thanks so much for the Anapanasati overview. I never had anyone really uh, be that precise with it before. Can you uh, can you help with an idea of what the progress you have described <coughs> looks like in an average meditator's daily life, uh, or how should an average uh, an average meditator, average meditator, <laughs> expect this progress to unfold, uh, and over what period of time? Thank you very much. Um, I think there. I think it's very hard to talk about average meditators. I think everyone is uh, kind of on different stages of this path, uh, and uh, so it. And it varies enormously from day to day, depending on uh, you know what your mind is like, how tired you are, and all of these kind of things you can 't really i don 't think it 's really possible to say uh, I think what you should just do you should just um, uh, uh, you know very very often in daily life you don 't even get started on anapanasati you don 't even get to the first stage uh, because your mind just needs time to settle down and to clear up and to feel at ease. Uh, depends enormously on your life circumstances, what you do, whether you work, whether you have a family, whether you, all of these kind of things. So it's very, very difficult to really make any general statements. Uh, what really, the only thing that really matters is that you enjoy yourself. That is the most important thing, yeah? that you have some kind of, some kind of progress uh, from the mental state you start with uh, to the mental state you end up with at the end of the meditation. That is what really matters, uh, because then you are going to be encouraged uh, and you're going to uh, want to continue because you, you know, it's actually working in one way or another. That is what matters. Uh. Um, sometimes you can make quite a lot of progress in a short time because the mind is in the right space. Uh, other times it seems like you're making no progress at all. Uh, uh, so uh, it's really impossible, I think, to specify this with any kind of uh, you know certainty. Uh, uh, some people may never get to Anapanasati in their whole life because their mind is not ready. Uh, other people will go a long way. Uh, uh, and uh, sometimes as a lay person you can go a long way uh, even and some monks don't go very far so it or nuns it just really depends enormously on the individual uh, uh, but again what matters is whether you're making progress uh, within a single meditation uh, and over time from you know one month to the next to the one beyond that uh, and you're feeling that you're actually heading somewhere this is what matters that there is some kind of progress going on here uh. All right, okay, so let's carry on. Dear Ajahn, do we keep, an, uh, keep on encountering the same relatives in the next rebirth, uh, especially parents and siblings, etc., whom we are strongly comically linked to? Uh, it seems to be that that is kind of the general understanding uh, in uh, the suttas. Uh, and if you read the uh, Jataka tales, the Jataka tales always talk about the Buddha and Devadatta, <laughs> And when Basariputta, Mahamogalana, and these people kind of meeting, Ananda, meeting each other life after life. 
And it kind of makes sense because of the connections we have. We will be drawn towards these people. And sometimes we will be drawn in kind of weird ways. Yeah, because maybe that we have problems with our relatives sometimes. And yet somehow we are attached even though we actually encounter problems. It's kind of strange how we work psychologically sometimes. So yes, there is a tendency to, be, to meet with the same people. And so make sure you have good relationships with your family members, right? Uh, so that you, when you come around next time, uh, you can carry on where you left off and you can make something uh, positive out of it. Uh, so um, I think the answer is basically yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. Do you want to add anything to that, Venerable? Uh, no? No? It's not anything? Okay, good. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, if you want to add this, let me know and we'll pass the mic over to you. Uh, Bante, who wrote down the suttas? Uh, I understood it was Venerable Ananda, but there are so many of them. Uh, many thanks. Splendid teachings. Okay. Who wrote down the sutta? Well, the, the writing happened a long time afterwards, uh, uh, but according to the, um, the way the things are, Venerable Ananda would have been one of the most important people who memorized the teachings because he was the Buddha's attendant uh, and he also had a superb memory, according to the sutta. So he was the perfect person to memorize the teachings. But the teachings were memorized by many people. And that is why after the Buddha's passing away, they had, they had a kind of a, a communal recitation of the suttas. And the various people would have remembered various suttas. And they came together and they kind of created what was the kind of embryonic form of what we now call the Pali Canon, uh, or the Canon of Suttas. Uh, and uh, so they were uh, chanted together, recited together, uh, and then they collected in this way. And because there was a large group of monks, they were kind of kept alive through many different people, which means that uh, errors and things get weeded out when you recite them together in that way. Uh. So there was, it was like an oral tradition in the beginning. Uh, and then... Uh, the the kind of the uh, traditional time for writing it down was about year 60 BC in the Aluvihara in Sri Lanka. That was the Theravadan tradition. Uh, whether that was very unlikely to be the very first writing down because uh, you know things don't happen suddenly all at once. Uh, so probably some suttas had already been written down previously. Uh, we know that is the case. For example, uh, suttas are mentioned by name even in the Ashokan pillars. Uh, and the Shokan Pillars, that's about 250, 260 BC, something like that. There are other schools of Buddhism. There are birch bark manuscripts that were found in the desert in Afghanistan. And some of these manuscripts date almost back to the year, around the year zero, or shortly after 20 to 40 AD or something like that. And these have been discovered in the deserts over there. So, so basically, the you know, it is a um, oral tradition that was collected together after the Buddha passed away, uh, and then passed on orally until it was written down. You know, a few hundred years later on, that's really how these uh, teachings came about. And you might be surprised that you might think that if it is an oral tradition, it is very uh, imprecise, and maybe many errors were uh, uh, made because of that. But that does not seem to be the case. Uh, uh, in ancient India, had a very 
a precise idea of how to keep suttas orally because that had been done by the existing culture. The Brahmins, the Brahmins had remembered the Vedas for centuries and millennia before that. And according to research, it was done extremely precisely, almost verbatim for millennia. So that means that they had that kind of technology, if you like, and we call it that way, of memorizing suttas. They had a system, they had ways of preserving it that were very well tested over time. All right. Hi, Ajahn. Thank you for the great teachings. Question, how do you start your day? How do you end your day? <laughs> okay. Uh, I usually start by getting up and I end it by going to bed. That's kind of how I... <laughs> but... Uh, uh, so usually I when I usually I get up and then I uh, uh, will do just a little bit, just kind of you know get up and get out of uh, bed and maybe sometimes I might have a cup of coffee straight away, sometimes not. It depends a little bit on how I feel that day. Uh, but usually I start off by doing some meditation uh, uh, at both ends of the day here, uh, because it's a good way to start uh, because you're fairly I feel fairly fresh usually in the morning, uh, not always but usually. And uh, then uh, to end your day is actually very useful because then you kind of do some bit of metta and a bit of kindness uh, to end your day. And usually it means you sleep reasonably well afterwards. Uh, so I think these are good ways. You don't want to uh, spend too much time meditating at the end of the day because if it makes you too bright, uh, then it can hamper the sleep. Uh, but a little bit just to you know make sure the mind is in a nice and balanced state. Uh, so I think that's a good way of ending the day. Not don't end your day with your iPhone or anything like that, because that's going to really <laughs> create troubles for you in sleeping properly and all of these kind of things. Uh, but I must admit, it varies a little bit depending on what I do and what happens. Uh, so it's not, uh, it's not. I don't have any kind of absolute structure to my day. So. <clears throat> Dear Ajahn, could you talk more about uh, working with sense restraint within lay life uh, with thanks and appreciation for the beautiful and inspiring teachings? Uh, so sense restraint is the uh, idea that you don't allow your mind to be overcome by desires uh, or ill will. Uh, yeah, that is kind of the main uh, idea. And uh, the way to do that is really to use wisdom uh, yeah, instead of using sense restraint. sounds like you're using willpower. Uh, but actually, you don't really have to use willpower. You have to use wisdom. Uh. So you see that ill will or something is about to arise. And because hopefully you have enough mindfulness to see that, uh, you can turn your mind in a different direction. And I've talked quite a bit about that. I usually talk about that on every retreat, uh, about learning how to look at people in such a way that you see their positive qualities or you have compassion for them and these kind of things. So when you see that that ill will is about to take hold in your mind, you quickly redirect your attention in a different direction. So this it doesn't actually arise. And as far as attach, attachments and desires are concerned, again, you just move your mind in a direction of remembering. Actually, that is not not really all that interesting. Now I'm practicing on the... You know, these attachments and the things, they often lead to trouble and all kind of things. So you don't allow stupid desires to arise in your ordinary life. Some desires will arise, uh, but you kind of keep the silly ones uh, at bay by just reminding yourself of the limitations of this. Uh. Sometimes sense restraint means you have to use a bit of willpower because sometimes you're about to do something very stupid. So you just hold yourself back. Okay, shut up, be quiet now. No need to talk now. 
It's about knowing your mind state, knowing when bad things are going to come out of your mouth. So you don't allow yourself to speak at those times uh, and you kind of do something else instead. Uh, so um, trying to use wis- wisdom power as much as you can. Occasionally you might need a bit of willpower to keep yourself in check. It's a big big area, with, uh, sense restraint, and usually I spend a lot of time on this during the retreats. I haven't talked about it much on this retreat, uh, but there are lots of recordings about this from previous retreats. I think, I believe there is. Okay. Um, dear Arjan, I'm still not sure what the Buddha meant by awareness of all postures in daily life, like part of the Kayanupassana. I think of mindfulness in daily life as twofold. One is metacognition, i.e. awareness of the object, uh, and awareness of knowing. Okay, so cognition, i.e. awareness of the object and awareness of knowing. This helps in realizing non-self. Second is realizing the changing process evident in each posture and situation or mood, reminding us of anicca. So mindfulness from moment to moment is shedding light on anicca and dukkha and anatta. Please share your views. Um, kind of, yeah. I, I mean, yes, you see anicca, but it's a kind of a shallow kind of anicca. It's not very profound. And you, are, you wonder how useful it actually is. Uh, yes, sure, you can see dukkha in daily life. You can see how there is pain. You can see how things changing and how that's sometimes unpleasant. Uh, but it doesn't go very deep because your mind is not that still or peaceful in daily life to be able to really make much use of that. Uh, so much more important in daily life, instead of doing this kind of thing, much more important is to make sure that you create the causes uh, that enable deep meditation later on. That is really the critical thing here. Uh, because it is when you sit down and you meditate later on uh, and you have created good causes uh, and for that reason your meditation comes together, that is when these things really become powerful. Uh, so instead of doing, trying to do these things in the course, ordinary daily life, when actually it's not going to have much effect, uh, instead uh, do this during meditation and create the causes for meditation during daily life. That is what is important. Uh, so uh, that's why I don't really believe in this four-posture meditation. That I've, I don't think that is what the Buddha taught, to be honest with you. I think that, is, uh, that, is, that, has, that comes from changes to this, uh, these suttas. This is not what originally was there. What was originally there was the 31 parts of the body. So uh, from that point of view, mindfulness should be geared towards being kind, having good thoughts, being gentle, having metta, having compassion, not being angry, not having too many desires. That's what it should be geared towards. And then if you do this gradually by changing your perceptions of the world, changing how you see everything, then eventually your mind will change. It will be seeing the whole world in a different way. And then when you sit down, actually it will be quite pure and your meditation will be more profound as a consequence. That to me is what... Uh, is the right way of approaching daily life. And also, as I mentioned before, the idea of changing your perception, changing your views, uh, looking at the world in a different way. Uh, Yes, you can look at the world uh, from the point of anicca, but in a different way, not by seeing things in your body rising and passing away, but just reminding you of, for example, death in daily life. Uh, 
That is a different kind of anicca perception here, or reminding yourself of the uncertainty of the whole world. You're looking at the news and you see kind of everything changing and going bad. That's an anicca perception, but of a slightly different kind. It is not focused directly on your body and mind, but on the world in general here. And that can always be done because it basically turns you away from the five sense world. That is where it turns you away from. And that is useful. So be, yeah, so it's about doing the right thing at the right time is a very important aspect of this part. This is how I understand these things. Yeah. Dear Ajahn, I always enjoy your teachings in person and online. I have peaceful time at this retreat. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I reflect on what you said about skiing in Norway. <laughs> okay, I assume you are an avid, and not anymore. I used to be an avid skier. That's true. Uh, um, uh, skier, something about skiing downhill. The skier focuses uh, on uh, the path and not on the trees. Uh, <laughs> True, that's a very good point. Yeah, you actually focus a bit on the trees as well, but you, you don't want to run into those trees. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that what we should do also? Focus on the happiness and joy on the spiritual path and not focusing on the pain and suffering. Yeah. I find it too much to take in if the focus is too much on the negative side. Yeah, it's, a, it's a good, very important point, actually. And uh, sometimes I know that there's a problem in them. Um, this teaching is sometimes I feel also that maybe I focus too much on the negative side, uh, but uh, that balance is important. Uh, and uh, the Buddha says there's three kinds of people in the world. There are those that are motivated by the negative things and they get going. Uh, there are some those that are motivated by the positive things, uh, like Ajahn Brahm. Uh, <laughs> and then there are those that are motivated by both. Yeah, They have both carrot and stick to get them going. I think most people might be those in the middle there who have a bit of both. Uh, so, but I agree with you, we should focus on the joy and happiness because there is so much enormous amount of joy and happiness on this path uh, in so many variations and degrees or whatever. Uh, and that should be the carrot that really gets us going. Uh, uh, but sometimes I think it's useful also to remember the potential pain uh, Yeah, if you don't get going. Uh, so a little bit of both probably is, uh, is useful. Uh, but uh, yes, thank you for uh, reminding us of that. Uh, and uh, uh, is indeed, I think, an important point. Uh, so, excellent. Dear Ajahn, thank you for sharing your deep knowledge and wisdom of the Dhamma. I found your teachings deep, inspiring, full of compassion and kindness and practical. I hope to see you again next year with deep gratitude. Okay, gee, that is very nice. Okay. You couldn't fit in some more positive words in there. That was <laughs> one thing after the other. That's, that's, very, that's very sweet. So that's, that's good. I'm very happy that people have enjoyed it because that's why I come. If no one enjoys it, I will not come anymore. So that's a, that's a good, good one. So great. We'll see what happens next year. Next year, always uncertain. Uh, you may be dead. I may be dead. We may all be dead. So let's, let's see. Uh, let's see how things go. So, um, okay. Dear Ajahn, much gratitude for your beautiful and insightful teaching. This has been my first eight-day retreat, and I will be ever grateful for your ability to turn the super tanker of conditioned mind around and head it in the right direction. Water to the deserts in the mind. Your explanation of the need for kindness, compassion, and right for you to be in the place practice before being able to experience deep meditation is like lives changing. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Happy travels. Wow. Okay. What can I say? <laughs> 
marvelous. I'm very happy that uh, people have uh, gained from this. So this is this is great. Uh, so this is what I, I put it over here. It means that I put it in my, my collection of notes. So when I feel a bit depressed, I take this out and I read them. And I go, <laughs> Ajahn Brahm, did, he told me that. He had this kind of folder in his, kind of, in his room uh, where he had all the letters that were really all the gratitude. Yeah? And whenever kind of he had any trouble with the Buddha society, he would take one of those letters out and read it. And then, ah, oh, okay, everything, everything is okay. Yeah. Eventually, he had so many letters that he had to just throw it all out because it was too much. <laughs> so that's uh, so now, now you know why it's over here. So that's uh, <laughs> dear Ajahn, thank you so much for the teaching. One of the um, one of the suttas mentioned something suttas, Kang Kang suttas mentioned had the Buddha saying that. Uh, he had seen greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, you said this, uh, indi- this indicated stream entry here, uh, but uh, the um, goes and discusses. But then goes and discusses jhana. So in this instance, there was stream entry before without jhana. I see. Okay, yeah. Can you elaborate, please? Uh, okay, I get, I get the gist of what you're talking about. Uh, this is the Chuladukha Kanda Sutta, Majjhimalikai 14, uh, and there's Mahanama, and uh, Mahanama is said to be a stream enter, and the Buddha then says, well, the reason why you get confused with delusion, greed, and hate, and all these kind of things is because you're not attaining jhana, yeah? And so the, the idea there seems to be that, well, someone becomes a stream enter without jhana. But that is not really the point of that sutta. Remember, jhana has to be repracticed all the time to keep these defilements at bay. It doesn't mean that this Mahanama never had a jhana experience. It just meant he didn't keep it up. That's really what it means. Um, so, so you can't really go, come to that kind of conclusion based on that sutta. But it does... It does also does not say that he did have jhana before stream entry, so it is a little bit unclear. Maybe it opens up that possibility. The suttas don't actually say anywhere, you know, once and for all, you have to have jhana before stream entry, but the indications are fairly strong. And one of the most important indications is that samadhi is the um, cause or the... Um, uh, the kind of uh, condition, the necessary condition, or upanisa is the word. Uh, what is the how to translate upanisa? Like a strong condition or something like that for yata bhuta nanadasana, seeing things in accordance with reality. So you have to have samadhi to see things in accordance with reality. Stream entry is obviously seeing things in accordance with reality. So you have to have samadhi for stream entry. What does samadhi mean? Usually means the four jhanas. Uh, sometimes it says samma samadhi is required for seeing things in accordance with reality, and it's definitely the four jhanas. Uh, so the evidence is quite strong that uh, jhana is uh, useful. Uh, uh, it is also natural. Yeah? If you think about the natural progress of the path, uh, it is easier to attain a jhana than stream entry. Uh, you have to give up more to become a stream entry than you have to attain a jhana state. Uh, so it is a natural progress that you go via jhana to stream entry. Why make it more difficult for yourself? It's like you, if you are an athlete, you know, you practice, you kind of, your times get better and better, but you don't, you don't, you don't practice, you, know, you don't do the 100-meter sprint, you go from 
12 seconds, then you go uh, 11.9, then 11.8, and you go down. You don't go straight from 12 to 11. Uh, you kind of go the things in between because that's kind of natural how you gradually develop the mind. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it, is, it is the natural progress of the path. That is what matters. And it is really not really a useful question anyway. Is it required? Because uh, you just practice the path uh, and you don't start out by saying it isn't required, so I'm, I refuse to do it. Uh, yeah, that's kind of would be silly. You just practice the path and if you get to the jhanas, okay, then you do the jhanas and then see what happens. Uh, you don't stop there because you've decided it's... Uh, no, I don't want to do jhanas. Yeah, straight to stream entry. Thank you very much. Uh, that doesn't. Uh, so it's uh, it's not. I I think that the whole question is is not really uh, a useful one here. Dear Ajahn, thank you so much for your inspiring teachings. In the second noble truth, the Buddha specified craving as the cause of suffering. Could you please talk more about craving? Here, are there many types of craving and how to overcome them? Thank you, Ajahn. So, uh, yes, uh, second noble truth uh, is uh, the uh, uh, Samudaya Satcha. Samudaya means origination. Satcha is truth, the truth of origination. Uh, and it is the, uh, the craving, uh, the uh, Tanha Ponobhavika. Ponobhavika means rebirth leading. Uh, tanha Ponobhavika Tata Tatra Binandini Nandiraga Sahagata, etc. Sayatidang. Kamatana, bhavatana, vibhavatana, something like that is how the second noble truth goes. And um, so what that uh, is, specifically, it's interesting, it talks about craving, leads to rebirth, yeah, porno bhavika, porno puna, puna is again, bhavika existence, tatra tatra abhinandini, abhinandini means to delight or to rejoice, tatra tatra means here and there. Yeah, it's like this endless rejoicing here and there, back and there's no end to the kind of rejoicing in various things. Uh, Nandi Raga Sahagata, conjoined with Nandi and Raga. Raga is like uh, strong desires. Uh, Nandi is like also delighting in the world. Uh, and then it says Sayatirang, that is to say, Kama Tanha, Bhavatana, Vibhavatana, uh, craving for sensual pleasures, uh, craving for existence, uh, and craving for non existence. Uh, yeah, these are the three kinds of craving here yeah, that um, are the problem. Uh, so it's quite specific kind of craving here. Yeah. And again, as I mentioned before, the Pali word for craving, tanha, really means thirst. Uh, yeah, so it's a very powerful kind of craving here. Yeah. It is not just the normal desires in ordinary life, yeah, the desires to that make us function in society, yeah, but fairly strong, powerful drivers inside of you. Yeah. If you, you know, if you think about your power, your craving to exist, it's a strong one. Yeah, it's a powerful thing. If someone says, I'm going to kill you, you don't want that. Why? Because our drive to exist is a very powerful drive. We don't want other people to kill us. If you look at some of the desires we have in the sensory realm, they can also be very powerful sometimes. You know, if you get very hungry, your desire for food can be very strong when you're very hungry, etc., etc., so these are quite strong cravings, driving, dr- driving forces uh, in our lives. Uh, the craving not to exist can also be strong. Uh, yeah, if you have a very miserable life, some people have really difficult lives and they just want to end it all. Vibhavatana, uh, they commit suicide as a consequence. Uh, so these are the three kinds of uh, 
craving and what is important about them why do they lead to suffering is actually a very important point uh, and people assume that um, what that means is that when you crave uh, yeah because craving feels in itself like suffering yeah it feels like suffering because when you crave you are separated from the object of the craving there's a distance between where you are and where you want to be here yeah? and that is a kind of suffering in its own right uh, but that is not craving leading to suffering that is craving being suffering here yeah? that is covered by the first noble truth the noble truth of suffering here yeah? in the first noble truth it says that you are united with those things that you don't like yeah? you're disunited with the things you like yeah? and you don't get what you want yeah? that is craving yeah craving is there you are you, that very craving for being united with what you want that is the problem yeah? craving feels like suffering yeah? it is part of the first noble truth not part of the second noble truth it's a kind of very important point craving in the second noble truth doesn't so much lead to suffering in the ordinary sense it can do of course but it has to do with rebirth it drives the rebirth process that is what is the problem rebirth redeath re old age re all of these things going on again and again that is really the problem with this this whole thing every time you die every life you have to die every time you build up a life every time you do all of these things to create an existence for yourself uh, at the end you have to give everything up uh, that is what is so difficult about all of this uh, so um, there are people who say that you know all oh, the second noble truth or the buddha yeah you know uh, kind of craving leads to uh, uh, suffering yeah. and uh, they say no it's not craving that leads to suffering yeah. It's the other way around. It's suffering that leads to craving. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Is that true? There is some truth to that, right? Because if you suffer, you want to go to the fridge and eat something maybe. Yeah. Oh, so much dukkha today. Let me eat something nice. I feel better. Or I watch some entertainment or I have some fun or whatever it is. Yeah. Because you are suffering. Yeah. And you will notice that when you suffer a lot, you want to distract yourself. Yeah. And that distraction happens in the realm of the five senses. We have all been there, all done that. That's just the way. It is. So there's truth to that. But that's not what the Buddha is talking about. And so sometimes when we turn the Buddha's teaching upside down, which some teachers do, uh, then we're actually missing out the main point of what these teachings really are about. Yes, what you are saying may be true, but that is not what the Buddha is teaching. Uh, what the Buddha is teaching is that craving drives the, the round of existence, drives the round of rebirth. Uh, that is what matters. Uh, so, uh, and that is what this whole thing is about. Uh, so karma tanna, the craving for sensual pleasures, it is always about the future. Yeah, whenever we want something in the sensory realm, it's always a desire in the future. Yeah? And actually achieving it is often not all that interesting. It's all, a lot of the thing is about actually getting there. Yeah? So we are projecting ourselves into the future. It drives the rebirth process. Yeah? Craving for existence is also often about what's well, about now, but also about the future. You want to exist in the future. So it projects you into the future. Yeah? Craving for non-existence is also about the future. It's a desired future state. You don't want to exist. So that too leads to rebirth because it is projecting you into the future. It's a desired future thing that you want. So all of these things are powerful forces that project the five khandhas into a new existence in this way. And so how do you overcome these cravings? Well, you practice the Noble Eightfold Path. 
right? First of all, you gradually diminish the craving. You diminish it by living well, by doing the right thing, by achieving spiritual happinesses, which diminishes the sensual craving. Yeah? And then deeper and deeper into samadhi, eventually in deep samadhi, the craving is gone temporarily. Yeah? And then that gives rise to the insight that can overcome craving permanently. Yeah? Right. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, much merit to you for your inspiring teachings and the suttas. Uh, can you please recommend suttas to help with understanding the leap from self to non-self? Uh, I would the suttas to, well, the, all the suttas are about that. Uh, yeah, uh, Every time you do the right thing, you live in the right way, you are actually starting to make that, uh, make that transition. Uh, the actual leap, the actual insight... Uh, are the things that we talked about today. Yeah? Yeah, they, uh, when you look at the five khandhas uh, and you look at the process of those five khandhas uh, and how they uh, gradually disappear and then uh, you look back on that and you see the non-self in that process, uh, that is where you get these kind of insights. Uh, um, but uh, the suttas just talk about it in this way. Yeah, You contemplate the five khandhas and when you contemplate them, then these are the kind of results that you get. Uh, if you want to understand the teaching of non-self in more detail, uh, uh, one nice place to start is the uh, Alagad Upama Sutta, the simile of the snake, Majjhimalikaya 22. Uh, is a basically long sutta all about non-self. It discusses the idea of non-self. It doesn't actually... Uh, talk specifically about the insights, but it discusses the idea or the problem of non-self. Majjhimanikai 22, uh, simile of the snake. Yeah. Another important sutta is the Anatalakana sutta, the characteristics of non-self. Uh, it's found in the Sangyuta Nikaya, the connected discourses, uh, the Kanda Sangyuta, the 22nd chapter of the Sangyuta Nikaya, sutta number 59. Uh, that is the, um, uh, uh, the uh, Anatalakana sutta. A very important one to understand this. In fact, all of the suttas in the Kanda Sangyuta, which is the 22nd collection or chapter of the connected discourses, almost all the suttas in that chapter revolve to some extent around the idea of non-self. And it's very, they're all very interesting to read. So those are two good places to start otherwise just uh, read broadly in the suttas i would recommend you come across many teachings small and large on this uh, idea as you as you go through it uh, All right. Dear Ajahn, gratitude for your compassion, wisdom, insight, humor as you led us on this special journey into peace. Special thanks also to Ajahn Nisarano for his demonstrative expressions and enthusiasm during the teachings. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even noticed that. Okay, I should, I should, I should watch more. I should. <laughs> a wonderful example of present moment uh, learner's mind. Learner's mind, okay. Especially when he is such an experienced monk, sadhu. Uh, good. And also practice of Santa over there. I'm not sure. I haven't looked at her much over there, but I, uh, she's probably doing well on that side over there. Uh, so that's wonderful. 
it is very nice to have an old friend like Ajahn Esarno. We have known each other. When I first came to Bodhinana Monastery in 1994, he was there and he took me under his wing and showed me. I've never been to Australia before. I had no idea. All I knew, it was a very dangerous place, Australia. There's snakes everywhere and strange spiders and weird things. I knew Australia was one of the most dangerous places in the world until I realized it was one of the least dangerous places in the world. <laughs> It's the, your ideas about a place before you come and the reality are just so different. Uh, but as I don't know, it taught me about the, I remember one of the things it taught me was the, about the blue tongue lizards. Uh, have you got those over here? Uh, have you, uh, no, no, that's only Western Australia. Okay, they're kind of cute little lizards. They have you got them here? Oh, you have them here, okay. They're kind of very non-dangerous. I don't know how they can possibly survive. They, they have no defense mechanism. They're kind of these little lizards. Who can, they can't even, not very fast even. Uh, anyway, so when I saw them, I, I was going, what is this? Uh, and I said, I, I, I said, I said, okay, relax. It's okay. They're they are kind of not very, not too much to worry about. Uh, so he kind of taught me the basic ropes of surviving the Australian <laughs> bush. <laughs> Remember that? Uh, yeah, they, they, that was a long time ago. Uh, and then you left the monastery for a year or so, uh, and, the, and that's why I was ordained before you because uh, you left and then you came back later on. So that's how it how it was. Uh, yeah. So that's a, that's almost that's third, pretty much thirty years ago now. So, anyway. So great. Thank you for those uh, nice comments. Uh, okay, dear Ajahn, it is said that the next Buddha Maitreya is in Tushita Heaven. Uh, uh, how do we know this? Uh, it's a very good question. Is it even predicted as to when he will be born? How is this predicted? Mm, if you would like to know, wouldn't you? So you can kind of hang around and wait for him and then kind of, <laughs> hey, welcome, welcome Buddha. Yeah, please enlighten me. I, I had this dodgy teachers, one of them called Ajahn Brahmali. I'm not, not sure if I trust him, but you are the ma real master. So, um, <laughs> so the thing is here that... Um, Buddha Maitreya, all of these things are very, very uncertain. Uh, and uh, one of the big mistakes I think that we do in the modern world is to focus too much on future Buddhas. Uh, we have the teaching of Buddha Gautama right now. Uh, and to me, it is a little bit disrespectful when people get too carried away by future Buddhas. I'm not saying that is your, in your case, but sometimes it happens. People get really carried away by this and they build statues to the future Buddha and, and they kind of worship the future Buddha, even though they don't even know where he will be, who he is, what kind of teachings he will have. Everything is just up in the air. So what are you worshipping? You're worshipping your own imagination, really. That's what you're worshipping. It doesn't really make much sense. We still have teachings. We still have the word of the Buddha. He is still available. That is what we should really pay respect to. That's what we should do our best to practice. That is the respectful way of dealing with the heritage that we have been bequeathed by the Buddha. So that is the first thing I would say. And uh, the Buddha Maitreya is just a pie in the sky. As I said before, the Buddha Maitreya might arrive and he, you might meet him and you kind of dismiss him because you think, you know, who is this kind of dodgy character or, and you kind of walk in a different direction like Upaka in the, in the um, Arya Pariyasana Sutta. Yeah? And you have no idea who the Buddha, you can't even recognize the Buddha when you see him. That's not what the Buddha looks like. No, the Buddha's different from that. Uh, you have your own ideas of what the Buddha's like. Of course, those ideas are, of course, completely wrong, but you don't know that. Uh, and so this is the problem, right? This is a real issue. So be fortunate, be happy that you now have some idea what the good teachings are. Use this opportunity to the best of your ability. 
The Buddha Maitreya is only mentioned in one single sutta called the Dhamma Chakka Sihanada Sutta in Diga Nikaya number 26. And he's mentioned in this one sutta. And uh, uh, that makes you wonder if it is mentioned only in one sutta, how important is that one sutta? One of the kind of golden standards to go by when it comes to the suttas uh, is that only those teachings that are mentioned again and again in the suttas uh, should we really take seriously. Uh, teachings that are rare, yeah, that are unusual, that don't really fit with the mass of suttas, uh, we should have a healthy skepticism about those. Uh, and we should, never, uh, we should never interpret the majority of suttas uh, in the light of rare and unusual passages. So if you take this particular passage in the Dhammachakka Sihanada Sutta, Diga Nikaya 26, and you compare that to other sutta, to uh, uh, parallel suttas found in other languages like Chinese, in other words, basically the same sutta but translated into another language, uh, in that parallel sutta, Buddha Maitreya is not mentioned. So then you wonder, right, which one of these suttas is correct? If it's not mentioned in the parallel sutta, there is an issue. There's an issue of authenticity. What is the authentic, the authentic one? And for those people who have done studies on these things, and number one person who studied these things is Venerable Analayo, kind of one of the great scholars of the modern area. He's a monk. He lives in the U.S. I just met him recently when I was over there at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. He has his own little cutie, beautiful little cutie. He has a coffin in his cutie. That's where he sleeps, in his coffin. <laughs> it's nice. It's, you know, it looks like it's like a coffin with a mattress in it, and he kind of sleeps in, in there. And it's a nice little cutie, full of books. Yeah, absolutely packed with books. And there's a big panoramic window overlooking the forest. And he has a seat in front of the window. He has a coffin and he has lots of books because that's kind of his, his life. And he just meditates pretty much all the time. And then he writes the occasional article like this about Maitreya Buddha of the future. And he came to the conclusion that this is a later addition to the Pali Sutta for, I can't remember the exact reasons now, but that was the conclusion. And to me, that sounds like a very... Uh, obvious conclusion. So what we, what we do know, we do know that there will be future Buddhas, yeah? because Buddhas come and go. This is the nature of Buddhas. When the conditions are right, someone will make a breakthrough and they will see the nature of reality and they will pass that insight onto other people. So there will be Buddhas in the future. There, will, there have been Buddhas in the past and we have the teachings of one Buddha right now. Uh, but we don't know the idea. You know, what's the point of calling this future Buddha Maitreya? We can't call him Maitreya. You can just give him a name. And then, then of course, then you have a Buddha Maitreya. But it makes it more real than it actually is. It gives you the feeling that this person is about to arise. It, makes you this, it gives this kind of false sense of security about things. But the point is that these things are completely uncertain and completely unpredictable and we have no idea what really is going to happen. In the Pali tradition, the further away you come from the Buddha, the closer you come to our time, the more of these kind of predictions you have. Yeah, these predictions start to expand. And there is a book, a Pali book called the Anagata Vangsa. Anagata means future. So Vangsa means lineage. So it means the lineage of the future. And this is a book about the future Buddhas, yeah, when they're going to come. And uh, who wrote that book? 
we don't know. Someone must have written it down. Someone must have kind of decided this was a good, good idea and kind of come up with these things. How reliable is it? Where does it come from? Why was it written? It wasn't written by the Buddha, that's for sure. And this is the problem with myths and legend. They build up over time. We don't really know what, what they're all about. So forget about Buddha Maitreya. That's what I would recommend. If you practice to the very best of your ability in this life, if you go as far as you can on the path, if you understand the Dhamma as deeply as possible, then you have the greatest chance to recognize the Buddha if you meet the Buddha in the future. That is the most important criterion for recognizing the Buddha in the future, that your mind is developed in the same direction, so you have an idea what the Buddha is about. That is the best way to do this. But uh, the idea that somehow, you know, that some people have, that you should kind of focus on Maitreya Buddha. I'm not, I'm not saying this is you. I'm not sure exactly why you're asking this question, but this seems to be a tendency in our world. Uh, and I think it is very misguided. Uh, so uh, anyway, so that's my point of view. So I'm not, I must have to admit, I'm not really all that interested in Maitreya Buddha. So apologize for that. Uh, all right. Bhante, is it wise to do the contemplation of the body if you have a tendency to self-hatred? Um, that's a good question. Maybe not. Um, I suppose that self-hatred, I guess it depends how it really manifests this self-hatred. I mean, it can manifest in different ways. I, um, the body is just the body, so maybe the self-hatred has more to do with the mind. I'm not sure. I guess it depends how, how these things uh, manifest. Uh, but to try, you can try and see what happens. Uh, and if it makes you hate yourself more, then maybe it's not such a good idea. Um, it also depends on how you contemplate the body. Maybe seeing it as impure or seeing it as uh, in a negative light may be a problem. But... Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so that might be a problem. But if you do instead see it... Uh, uh, maybe as the four elements meditation. Yeah, four elements is not really a very negative perspective. So you can maybe still do that, put pulling it apart in that sense. So uh, doing it in a way that uh, you know does not lead to self hatred is obviously really important. Uh, so just uh, try different things, different ways, uh, and maybe you find something that works. Uh, in the end, you don't really have to do body contemplation. You can just do the breath meditation, and that includes the body contemplation anyway. Uh, so uh, whatever works is really the bottom line. Uh, whatever increases the good qualities and uh, reduces the bad quality. That's always the final kind of arbiter that decides what you should do and should not do. Uh, good qualities improving, bad qualities going down then you are heading towards Nibbana. That's kind of the whole point of uh, that, uh, this practice. Dear Ajahn, can we condition more positive rebirths from life to life by practicing this path, Dhamma, virtue, etc.? Yes, absolutely. So... Uh, 
Well, you, you know, by practicing this path, not only are you heading towards Nibbana, but you're also creating better rebirths, which is a nice thing. It's a double positive. Huh? Um, or do past negative karmas catch up with us and throw us into negative rebirth situations? Sometimes it does. Uh, it can happen. Uh, we can never be entirely sure how we're going to be reborn. Uh, unless you have access to deep samadhi, then we can be absolutely sure. If you have access to that when you die, you're guaranteed to go to a good destination. Uh, uh, or if you're an Aryan, uh, uh, part, part from that, you can never be entirely sure. Uh, so that's kind of one of the slightly worrying things about this rebirth process. Uh, Two, does it help to make strong aspirations to meet with the Dhamma, wise teachers, etc., in rebirths going forward? Uh, if so, how best to do this? Uh, the best way to be, have a good rebirth and to meet with the Dhamma is to practice the best your ability, create a mind that is as bright and clear and, uh, and with as many good qualities as possible, and to understand the Dhamma properly, understand the Four Noble Truths, what they really are about. Uh, and uh, that means that when you get reborn, uh, you get reborn in the Devaloka, right? That's where you're going to get reborn because you are a good person, so I'm sure. But when you get reborn there, and then the Devas start to teach the Dhamma, because they will, because you're going to the heavenly realm, the Dhamma is going to be there. It stays there longer than in the human realm because the Devas have such long lifespans. Uh, when you hear the Dhamma, they will say, oh, I remember this. Uh, I recognize this. Wow, this is the teaching of the Buddha. I, f I think I, must, I was a Buddhist in the past. Okay, let me hang out with these devas. Uh, and then you kind of go to the right corner of heaven. Uh. Yeah, you go, don't go to the Christian corner of heaven. Don't go to the Muslim corner of heaven. You don't go to the atheist. You go to the Buddhist corner of heaven. Uh, and you hang out there. <laughs> so that, that, <laughs> because that, that, I think that's the reality. The reality is that you know, people of different religions get reborn in heaven because they are good people in all religions and no religions. Uh, and people tend to gather together according to their beliefs and faiths. Uh, so quite likely, it is like the human world. Christians hang out with Christians, Buddhists with Buddhists. Uh, so heaven is going to be a little bit like that. Uh, yeah, he heaven is just a glorified version of uh, the human realm. That's really what it is. Uh, so you, uh, you can expect to see many of the same things in heavenly realm. Uh, question number three. Is it possible to meet and practice the Dhamma in the Deva realms? Yes. Or just the human realm? No. And if so, should we make aspirations for this? No. Many thanks. Yes. <laughs> so the, the answer is that uh, I, this is kind of one of those, another myth, a legend in uh, that you have to be reborn as a human. We should make aspirations to be reborn as a human. I don't know where that comes from. It does not come from the suttas. That's absolutely sure. So I would say, instead of trying to guide yourself and mess up your whole rebirth process because you don't really do it properly, just chill on your deathbed. Yeah, Don't try to guide yourself. Just relax, enjoy the process. Death is good fun for a good person. Yeah, it's a nice journey. You're letting go. You're moving towards something bright and beautiful. Death is not frightening if you are a good person. Uh, just enjoy the process. Uh, and if it takes you to the Devaloka, so be it. Uh, yeah, and enjoy a holiday in the Devaloka with a bit of practice of Dhamma, hanging out with the Aryans, lots of noble people in Devaloka, and then do a bit of meditation and maybe Buddha Maitreya might come around. <laughs> I probably shouldn't mention Buddha Maitreya after all. 
all what I said before. But anyway, yeah, maybe another Buddha will arise, yeah, and then you kind of hang out and you, you kind of you're a deva as you come down to the human realm and say, "Oh, Buddha, my friend, please teach me. I'm just a deluded deva." Okay, so he teaches you, right? Uh, and uh, I think that is a much better way of doing things rather than trying to guide ourselves uh, and often not really understanding what we are doing here. Devas can become stream enterers. Yeah? There are many examples of that in the suttas. Uh, devas listen to the Dhamma. Lots of examples of that. Uh, the Buddha is the teacher of gods and humans. Uh, so being a deva is perfectly okay. Yeah? Dear Bhante, thank you for your teachings. Question, is there anything in the Pali Canon that suggests all beings will eventually become enlightened? There is a sutta where there's a fellow who goes up to the Buddha and he says, will all beings become enlightened or only half or only a third? And what does the Buddha reply? He remains silent. <laughs> it's true. The Buddha says there's four different ways of, of uh, answering a question. Uh, uh, I think the uh, one way is like to give a direct answer. Uh, another way is to give a detailed explanation. A third way is to give a, ask a counter question. Uh, and the fourth way is to remain silent. <laughs> Four ways to reply. Uh, and in this case, he, re he remains silent. Why? Probably because there isn't any answer. Yeah? Uh, or it is very complicated or it's hard to know how it's going on. Uh, how it happens. And uh, it's one of those strange things. If you think about samsaric existence uh, going back uh, f forever in the past without any kind of uh, in beginning point, uh, if that is the case, how come everyone isn't enlightened already? Uh, if there have been an infinite number of Buddhas in the past, uh, then surely everyone should already be enlightened. Uh, but actually that's not the case. Uh, so there's something about the universe that we probably don't understand properly. Uh, maybe there are new beings somehow being generated. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe there haven't been infinite Buddhas in the past. Uh, yeah, there, there's something going on which is not entirely clear. Uh, and I think this is part of the complication. These are some of the things the Buddha never really explained uh, because this has to do with uh, things that are not really relevant for the Dhamma. The Buddha only taught things that are relevant for the Dhamma. And he didn't teach us things that are just more philosophical or speculative kind of uh, issues. Uh, and uh, so there's some things that we may never really get answers to. Uh, and uh, maybe that's good. Uh, maybe because maybe it is just a distraction, detraction from, uh, and a distraction from what we're doing here. And I have good news again. We have come to the last question for the evening here. It's always exciting. Is the last question? It's the last question on the entire retreat. So now, now this person, they have the responsibility for having asked the kind of the, the last question. Now the, <laughs> now the pressure is on now. So anyway, so let's see what this is about. I'm just messing around. I apologize for that. So the last one, dear Ajahn, how do you know when you are ready to give up lay life? Well, that is a really nice question. Already, well done. I have it in the back of my mind for a long time that one day I want to leave everything behind and become a bhikkhuni. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm just being naughty. So, but there is always doubts in my mind whether I'm ready or not. How can I be more ready for this? I want to attain Nibbana in this life. I know I am on the correct path. So thank you. This is a very nice question to uh, end this retreat on. So I, this is really so well done on putting that question at the very bottom of the pile. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> 
So how do you know that you are ready? And uh, the answer is you never know. Uh, yeah? And this is the point. Don't wait till you know. If you wait till you know, you're never going to give it up. Because these things are not really knowable. Uh, and uh, so you just have to try it out. That's what I really recommend. Go to a monastery. Go to many different monasteries. Uh, stay there for a while. See what it feels like. If it feels like, like it's something useful or not. Uh, and then you start to incline towards things. Uh, speak with Venerable Santa over here. She is a soon to become a bhikkhuni. Still a seminary. But uh, what is it? Two weeks? No, less than two weeks? Uh, less than two weeks. Wow. Okay. So almost a bhikkhuni, right? Uh, and uh, how, how did, were you absolutely sure you were, Bikuni was the right thing to do, or were you just kind of trying? Go with the flow, Go with the flow right? Okay, so, so there you are. Go with the flow. <laughs> okay, good. So, that they, so this is how you, how you do things. So just try it out. And I really recommend you to try a few different monasteries. Uh, these days there are uh, more monasteries available for bikinis. Actually, here in Australia, there is about three or four different monasteries now. Uh, and there are monasteries popping up. There are in the US, there are a few. Uh, try a few different places because they all feel slightly different. Uh, the community is different in different places. Uh, and see what is suitable for you. Uh, and then uh, Gradually, you start to get a feeling for whether this is what you want to do with your life. Uh, um, to me, it has always been the case that uh, I have asked myself, what is the meaning of life? Uh, and to me, the idea, to me, lay life has not really seen, seemed as meaningful as monastic life. Because monastic life, everything is geared toward this practice of this path. Uh, in lay life, you're still doing things that are not really conducive to this uh, and so I asked myself, why would I want to be a lay person? Especially once you are a monk. Why, why go back to lay life again? Uh, it doesn't seem all that, uh, doesn't seem kind of uh, a very wise, a beneficial thing to do. Uh, so uh, I would definitely encourage you, at least try. Uh, and if you find out that living in monasteries is absolutely miserable and terrible, uh, then don't do it. Uh, uh, but if you do find that it is... Uh, useful and it is nice and it works out then you can kind of carry on yeah and stay a little bit longer and then eventually ask to ordain yeah so the younger you are the better don't wait too long don't wait till you're 85 yeah <laughs> because uh, then you have uh, this kind of might be too late um how can I be more ready? Just check it out. Just go there. You're probably read enough, plenty read enough already. Just, uh, just go and stay in the monastery. That's what I say here. Excellent. Okay, that is the last question uh, on this uh, retreat, I guess. Maybe we'll see what happens. Uh, but probably the last one. So uh, tomorrow morning we will carry on. Uh, two more sessions tomorrow. Uh, and uh, so uh, that's it for tonight. So I wish you all again a very... And good night's rest, a good night's sleep, and then ready for continuing tomorrow. And then just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha uh, to end off today here. Yeah.